Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, for the first time in this pandemic, I'm broadcasting from home. Thanks to an exposure I uh, was dealt last week and uh, just waiting the results of those tests. But hopefully you're hearing us nice and clearly. And the good man, Tim Thorpe, is in the studio directing everything for us uh, very effectively. On the line with me now, though, is Dr. Jane. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm very sorry that you're stuck at home, but I think it's about time you learned what it's been like for the rest of us for the last 18 months doing radio from home. So oh, welcome yeah. to the club. Yeah, I didn't have to put on <laughs> shoes. It's great. I can see you exactly. guys have been relaxing so much. Good morning, Ewan. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. And Chris KP. Hey, buddy. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I would say thank goodness this didn't happen during the Radiothon weeks. Um, but we do have a really big show for you today, folks. Uh, we've got the news starting off, and then we have we have four guests coming up, um, which are going to be talking about some amazing stuff. So let's get straight into the news. Dr. Jem, what have you got for us? Well, Shane, this week I saw a woolly mammoth story, and, I mean, really, who could possibly go past a woolly mammoth story because they're just so cool? So for anyone who's forgotten, woolly mammoths, they were relatively common in North America and Europe and Northern Asia during the last Ice Age. Most of them died about 10,000 years ago, but they're certainly a big part of our, you know, storytelling. We we all see them, whether in Ice Age movies, but because there's been millions of mammoth tusks buried in Siberia and in the Arctic today, we often hear about them being uncovered, sadly, as a result of uh, increasing uh, temperatures thawing the ice. And I didn't know, but there's enough tusks out there that they're still considered an important part of commercial ivory, which kind of blew my mind. But anyway, I digress. So the cool thing is that, of course, these tusks can give us heaps of information, these really quite detailed timelines of the past, based on some quite nifty chemical analyses. So I won't go into it too much, but I'm sure many of our listeners have heard this idea before. Strontium is an earth metal and it occurs in different versions, which are known as isotopes and in different proportions in soils all around the world. And when mammals eat plants that have been growing in that soil, some of that strontium gets incorporated into their teeth and their bones. And in this case, if you're a woolly mammoth, some of that strontium gets incorporated into your tusk. So if you do this analysis of the strontium in the tusk, you can make a detailed timeline of where the mammoth has been feeding. And so researchers in the US just made such a map of where the owner of a 17,000-year-old tusk moved. So we're talking a five and a half foot long tusk. This tusk we now know came from a male mammoth who was about 28 years old when he died. And it turns out that in his lifetime, he walked more than 80,000 kilometres. So that's almost twice the circumference of the earth, which I think that's pretty impressive, right? That's a really, really bloody long way. And and it's not just that. We have much more detail. We know he stayed close to home till he was 16. Then he decided he'd had enough of his motherhood. And that's when he started ranging all around the, um, the Arctic Circle. And then in the last year and a half of his life, he stayed within a very small area of what is now northern Alaska, present day northern Alaska. We know he probably died of starvation. We know exactly where that happened. 
And we used to think mammoths were really sedentary, but clearly not. 80,000 kilometres. Amazing, hey? It's a huge range, isn't it? Especially given, yeah. Yeah, but it's also just so constant. Like you said, constantly on the move for such a long period of time as well. Mm. Yeah. So I'm feeling a bit sedentary myself. I'm older than 28 and I ain't done 80,000 kilometres. I don't (laughs) know. Yeah, it's 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 interesting though as we look at more and more of these remains, and as more and more of them become exposed um, as the ice melts in various regions of the world, we'll be able to map more and more of these creatures and what they did, which will be yeah, fascinating. For sure. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Okay, Doctor Ewan, what have you got for us? I would like to talk about predators, uh, and so we know that large predators obviously have pretty important roles in ecosystems, and there's a really fascinating study that came out recently in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences looking at interactions between mountain lions or cougars, coyotes, bobcats, and black bears, and in particular looking at coyotes and mountain lions. So mountain lions obviously run around and spend some of their time killing things, And coyotes actually capitalise on this and scavenge some of those kills. And so a really fascinating study has looked at the benefits but also the risks involved in scavenging those kills. So what they did was they had cameras in the area. They also had bears, bobcats, mountain lions and coyotes all GPS tracked. They also looked at uh, scats or poo because, of course, if you work on mammals, you work on poo quite a lot. That's what we do. And they looked at what they were eating. And what they found was that even though, you know, the uh, coyotes, which roughly sort of 15, 20 kilos, so actually kind of about dingo size, not big animals, bear in mind that a mountain lion can be anything from 50 to 100 kilos, in some cases a little bit more big animals, 25% of deaths, it's estimated, per year of coyotes are caused by mountain lions. So what they think is going on basically is coyotes are going well I'm going to trade off my risk of dying against free food. Whereas the bears themselves, they did, you know, make use of those, those kills and they did feed on those kills that the cougars had actually made themselves. And the bobcats avoided them completely and said, no, I'm not having a bar of this because it's too risky. Mm. So I think it's just a really fascinating study that shows mm. that although one species may benefit from another, in the case of, you know, coyotes benefiting from um, cougars making kills, and I should say that, the important part with the kills is that the cougars are killing things that coyotes can't, so elk, which are really big prey that a coyote could normally mm. not take down, they can scavenge those kills. So even though they're getting that benefit of being able to feed on something that they otherwise couldn't kill, there's also a big risk that comes with it, which means that when we're looking at sort of the consequences of losing one predator from a system or bringing a predator back in some cases as well, again, as we've talked about many times, it's uh, complex to say the least in terms of the interactions that we might expect. So fascinating study, I think. Mm. It's interesting, uh, Dr. Ewan, as to how long, if we do make one of those changes, it takes for the system to rebalance. Mm. Because it seems as though the answer to that, especially the apex predators in some cases, is years, if not decades. Is that your feeling? Yeah, it is. And I think it really depends on how complex the system was to start with. So, you know, if you go to Africa, as an example, in the, in the savannas, there's lots of different predators. You know, you've got lions, you've got leopards, you've got cheetahs, you've got hyenas, you've got African wild dogs, blah, blah, blah. You've got a really complex system. If you look at Australia, as an example, you've got dingo as the top predator on land. That's it. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's it. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's a really simple system by comparison. So in some ways, you can actually disturb that system a hell of a lot easier. So, yeah, it really does in part depend also on how complex it is. But you're right, it can take decades or more to actually recover a system when we stuff it up. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I just find it fascinating how, um, and we're starting to learn more and more about this, of course, but how much the changes at the very top of the food chain have effects at the very bottom of the food chain and all the way along, mm, absolutely. Um, which is something I think a lot of people didn't really ap- appreciate that if you do take that top predator out, it doesn't just affect the next one down. It affects yeah. everything below it. Which... Traffic cascades, as they like to call it. So yeah. Yeah. It's all connected. It's the circle of life, <laughs> Dr. Shane. Oh, well, she's, she's, if she had a cat, she'd be holding it up, folks. But she, <laughs> <laughs> but she does not. Uh, Chris no, KP, what do you, you got for us, Chris? I think, I think if Jen had a cat, she'd be stroking it while it was eating a mouse. That'd be appropriate. <laughs> or anything else. Um, I have, I have a, um, a study that came out of the University of Dartmouth and it, and it appealed to me because I've been making this claim for years, um, <laughs> sort of, and I, and I stand by it. Um, and I've been make, I'm making this claim in terms of communicating and presenting, and that is the dynamics are important. You, you, can be, you, you can't have just good content or just be energetic, if you like. You've got to have changes in that. And what, these, um, what this team was studying was eye contact. Uh, and what they were looking at is, when people are conversing, they, you know, eye contact is important. That's not something that will surprise anybody. Um, but what happens when you are in conversation with someone you, is you experience what's called pupillary synchrony, which is when your pupils are dilating in sync with each other. Oh, so you're looking at something, you're chatting away. And so you'd think that when you're really engaged in a conversation, this is going to be happening a lot, like really tight and really often. But it's not that simple. What these guys did is they got a, a bunch of students together in pairs because students are cheap labour, and they got to have conversations <laughs> for 10 minutes, um, which is a very long time for a lot of undergraduate students. But that's okay. They chatted for 10 minutes, um, and they studied uh, how they were looking at each other and how their pupils were dilating during, this, during the conversation. What they found is that um, people make eye contact when your pupillary synchrony is at its peak. So when it's at its most in sync, that's when eye contact happens, but not because you're making eye contact. In fact, quite the opposite. They found once you made eye contact, that synchrony dropped away again. Mm. Uh, And in fact, it only recovered once your eye contact was broken and you had a chance to sort of get it back in sync. So it looks like rather than eye contact gets you in sync, it's like, no, no, we make eye contact when we need to change things up a bit, when you need to just push the, uh, the envelope a bit and make it interesting again or introduce some new perspective or new tone or get involved more yourself. That's when eye contact is actually important. And it's when you're in the zone, if you like, settling into it more, that's when you're, um, you're actually subconsciously, if you like, um, more in sync with each other. So I think, yeah, so dynamics are important, um, which yeah. also makes, makes it interesting when you think about what we're doing now. Here we are in a, in, a, uh, in, a, in a virtual conference setting, having a conversation. If you turn the video off, it does make a difference. It mm. makes a difference to how well Definitely. you're able to connect. I mean, one of the things that I, I always say when I teach my comms courses is mm. that when we're in the room with people, subconsciously or otherwise, we are absorbing a lot of information all the time. And that Absolutely. tells us whether our audience is engaged or not. It tells us a whole lot of things. On Zoom, we only mm. get about 20% of that information, but our brain's still trying to do the exact same job. Mm. And I believe this is one of the reasons why we get so tired when we're on Zoom calls every day, whereas if we're meeting with people in person, we don't. Yeah, um, totally there's, there's, there's a big difference in what's going on. And I think, um, Chris, I, I, though I've, I, I had a researcher I used to work with years ago, and he was one of these classic never make eye contact guys and it, used to, it used to really mess with me because i'd be like hey 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 up here over here come on look up look up and you know but that that's a that zero eye contact problem is you can feel that there's something wrong in the engagement when that's yeah. that's occurring and it's interesting the way you describe it that our brains are doing some automated work there yeah at the same time it's not just all you know conscious so, so, so yeah 
I have a question, Chris. I wonder how that affects vision-impaired people. You know, obviously, if you're not able to make eye contact, you know, physically speaking. Such an interesting question. I have no idea. Um, it's interesting because I wonder if you, um, if there is, depending on the the nature and the origin and the, I guess the the experience you've got with that vision impairment, whether or not your eyes are still doing yeah. you know, what, but also mm. is there what other things? I mean, this is one component of Absolutely. expressing engagement. What else do you do? And I'm sure that there are there would be certainly neuronal things going I'm, on. I, I wonder what they are. Yeah, I mean, mm. we know that other senses compensate, but you know, when mm. you have a sense that's you know downregulated or something. So uh, yeah, it'd be fascinating to know. But even that. even at, even outside of um, of compensatory senses, I think that there, I mean, this is only studying one thing. There may well be that the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up, that the you know your perspiration's changing. Heaven only knows what else is going on. So I think there is there's probably a lot more to it. It's just that it's yeah. you know it's it's limited by its. Uh, Focus, I guess. Chris, is this you trying to tell us that your heart is currently racing because you're just so delighted to be talking to us all? (laughs) I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you the symptoms I have. They are multitudinous. Yeah, that's what I gathered. That's what I was gathering, Chris. I'm glad you you were open Sweaty palms. Sweaty palms. You'll need a a shower after (laughs) my mouth. After the show, it's all happening for the poor guy. Oh, boy. I think, it's, you know, and I say this often, Chris, because I think it's appropriate, but with you, it's it's usually way too much information. I think it's- <laughs> hey, I thought I stopped just before the line there. <laughs> Actually, you did pretty well. Uh, look, just... Just before we go to the break, I just wanted to thank everyone for um, for the last few weeks in the Radiothon, everyone who who supported the station. And, and just a, a quick note that the Radiothon actually is continuing. It's not done yet. You know, there's a, there's weeks to go. So if you do want to support Triple R, you can still get online and uh, and subscribe if you haven't done so already. We'd appreciate that. The sort of uh, the fun on you know on air part of Radiothon has ended for us, so we would sort of return to normal programming for all of you but um if if you know you still want to support triple r and you haven't done so already uh, we would very much appreciate that but at this point i should say a, a big goodbye to to jen you and, and chris we're going to go to a break in a moment with uh, the great tim thorpe uh, running the running the helm there at triple r while i'm i'm just lazing around at home thanks guys for the new segment and uh, have a good day you too shane take it Thanks easy everyone. Tim, over to you for some music, and we'll be back in just a few minutes, folks, with our first guest for today. Triple R. In the studio with me now is Dr. Susan Christo. She's from the Doherty Institute. Good morning, Susan. How are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope you're feeling okay. I'm good. I'm totally oh, good. Uh, I was kind of, a, what, what, what do you say? I was uh, nasally infiltrated earlier this morning <laughs> by a very a very skilled uh, professional. I have to say, you know, when I see people you know, moaning about wearing masks in supermarkets and so forth, and I see these people in the testing stations wearing N95 masks all day, face shields, gloves, gowns, the whole lot. I mean, it's so uncomfortable, but they're there all day doing this for us. And I think you know, we all need to just sort of be, be mindful of that. So, no, yeah. absolutely. A lot of respect goes out to all of our healthcare workers at the moment. So, Ab- yeah, yes. absolutely. Now, now you're at the Doherty Institute, but one, I suspect you're one of the few people that isn't totally focused on COVID, which is, you know, <laughs> I mean, people forget sometimes that the Doherty Institute does a lot of amazing work in HIV and other areas. And you work in the area which one of our colleagues is involved with, of course, um, Dr. Laura, who's normally on the show, of um, tissue memory cells, or these T cells that we have that are part of our immune system. So before we get into what you've been doing specifically, tell us a bit about how how this part of our immune system is different. So 
as you mentioned, we work on a very specific type of immune cell called tissue-resident memory T-cells, and it's a bit of a mouthful, but essentially these cells are these types of T-cells that are found within our organs. And we, we of course, have multiple different types of, of T-cells around our body, but the important thing about these TRM cells or these tissue-resident cells is that they do not recirculate into the blood. That is that they're always in the tissue and importantly, they act like our security guards, if you like, because they're at the front door and they're, they're really ready to detect danger as soon as they see it. Yeah. So we know from a lot, lot of different studies that these cells not only are in our tissues, but they look very different to the cells that are in the blood. And studies have demonstrated that they have a higher protection or higher capacity to protect us uh, because of just simply where they're located. So this yeah. is a really big advantage uh, in our in our immune system it's it's fascinating to me and I, I i keep coming back to this idea that this is a relatively recent discovery but you can kind of imagine how that would be the case because in a lot of the biological work we do people will take blood samples and so forth from the body of which as you say these cells just don't exist in that part of our body is that right that's right, absolutely. And I think that as technology gets better as well and, you know, we're again gaining access to a lot more different samples across the body, we're able to find these cells in every single tissue that we look at. And so we really know now from a lot of human studies that the more that of these cells that you have, the better protection that you have against cancer and, and infection. Mm. So a lot of work is coming out now to understand uh, what do we need to generate these cells, how can we make them better, and how can we use this information to improve our current vaccines and our current therapies so we can get longer-term protection against various infections. Yeah. Now, when you go looking for these cells, and my understanding is I think the skin was the, one of the first areas where you, you sort of <laughs> saw these and so forth. How different do they look compared to the sort of immune cells we'd find in the blood? Like, is it something that you can look through a microscope and say, oh, yeah, that's clearly you know, part of the immune system or are these things like what the hell is that you know this is not like what we expect yeah all. so they have a whole range of different proteins and genes that they they have that the blood the ones in the blood do not but interestingly the ones in the blood they almost um they they have they take on a different shape so in the blood these cells are quite round and you can think about mm -hmm. it like they want to they're quite nifty they want to get around whereas in the tissue there's a lot tighter spaces and so they have more of these kind of limbs or these arms that are that are poking out of their cell body to try and survey the area because they're constantly looking out for danger that's their entire job um, and so phenotype so you know the shape looks a little bit different their image looks a little bit different um, and we have ways to now detect these cells in a whole range of different organs right do we find them in all of our organs are there parts of the body where they they just don't exist or or is it just we haven't looked yet or what, what are your thoughts on that they, they really do exist in every tissue that we've currently assessed. So, and this is both in preclinical models, so different types of animals and, and as well as in humans. But I think people really want to understand how they differ between, say, healthy people and diseased tissues because mm. this is where we can start to use this information to target the cells and make them a lot better. Yeah. Now, I want to talk to you a little about the, the memory that these things have, because I think that's where our immune system is fascinating. And at the moment, obviously, this is very topical with how long our vaccines will last, you know, mm -hmm. how long our bodies will be resistant to, to mm -hmm. the COVID sort of infection. And with, with these cells, so these things are stuck in our tissues, so they're not wandering around. Exactly. How, does, how does memory work in that case for cells that are more static in that sense? Do they 
do they get sort of born with the knowledge that they need or do they learn through exposure? How does that work? It's very much a learning process. And uh, so what happens when these cells are what we call naive, actually, so there's a naive T cells. And uh, what happens is they see their danger signal and they go through what's called proliferation. So they divide and they divide and they generate a whole army of cells. And this army is what goes out into the tissues and fights that infection. So, for example, I think probably the most topical right now is let's say you have a COVID infection, um, uh, infection in the lungs these cells will then enter into that lung space and they will try to attack any of the cells that are infected and get rid of that kind of danger. But what happens is that some of those cells that enter into the tissue stay there and they still retain the same capacity to find that danger signal. So this is kind of the basis of vaccination. What we want to do is generate really high numbers of those those cells that remember that danger. And um, this is uh, some of the work that we've been trying to understand is how that tissue environment can affect the behaviour of these particular cells. Mm. It's it's really interesting to me. Is there a difference between various organs and what and what that sort of um, memory aspect and learning is like? Because I can imagine in some cases. Uh, so, and I'm, you, correct me if I'm wrong here, but there's some parts of the body that get exposed to a lot more different things than other parts of the body. So, do we find that these cells have sort of different capacities for memory and how long they keep the knowledge compared to in, in one part of the body compared to another? That's a great question because that was um, something that was not really touched in the field, and, and one of kind of our main overarching aims in our projects was to kind of understand how these cells differ in different tissues and different sites. And um, so what we did was we took a whole range of different organs and we looked at these TRM cells in those sites and we found very early on that the biggest differences that we observed were between the skin and the liver. And if you think about it, these two are very, very different organs in Mm. the sense that the skin is an organ that's constantly exposed to the environment. It's constantly exposed to the air that we breathe in, the, the, you know, the bugs in in our systems, et cetera, whereas the liver is considered more of a sterile environment so that you don't really have that interaction with the outside world. And what we found was that the TRM cells, these cells that entered into the skin or the liver, they look very, very different. Um, And we also found out that there's a particular protein in these particular tissues that control this behaviour. And um, one of our big findings was that this particular protein acted like a handbrake on the skin TRM cells. So what that means is that these cells were a lot more restrained in their ability to kind of respond to danger signals than the liver TRM. However, the trade-off to that was that the skin TRM cells could last 10 times longer in our body than the liver TRM cells. Mm. So we now have this discrepancy between, it's like a sprint in a marathon. You know, these, these skin TRM cells constantly exposed to the environment they want to make sure that when they do respond they're responding to the right thing because we obviously have good bugs and bad bugs on on our skin we want to make sure that our skin trm are restrained enough that they're not just you know going crazy because that can obviously lead to autoimmune disorders like uh, psoriasis whereas in the liver they don't have that same kind of restraint because they're not dealing with a whole range of different um, good and bad bugs Uh, so this was kind Mm. of one of our main findings 
So now, I mean, this sounds really simple to me. You and the team there, you know, Laura McKay and others, you just have to take the long-lasting, you know, factors that are in the skin mm-hmm. ones and put those into the liver ones so that we retain our you know, ability to respond to things like COVID for a much longer period of time. Is it, is it that simple? Just, you know, copy and paste? Copy <laughs> I, and paste? Wish, I wish it was that simple, but definitely gaining all of this information is what we need to make better therapies in specific organs for specific diseases. I mean, there's no real benefit in taking what we know about a liver TRM and applying it to a lung TRM because they're very, very different. Um, and so we really need to study these, these T cells in the context of their disease so we know what they need, what they want, and, and how to make them live longer. Yeah. Are there any indications when you just so the one final question for you is when when you look at cancers and and people who have cancers growing in certain parts of the body, is there an indication that these particular immune cells in that body are, are not functioning well in that part of the body? Because it seems like to me, cancer is that scenario where our immune system starts to lose. Because we mm-hmm. get cancer, we get anomalous cells all through our lives, but our can our system works and it deals with it. Mm-hmm. But then all of a sudden it gets overwhelmed sometimes in a particular organ. Is there any connectivity there between that that problem and what you're seeing? Well, interestingly enough, if you think about it, a tumour itself or a cancer almost acts like its own organ in itself. Mm. And so that brings a whole range of complexities and, and other proteins and, and other molecules that can affect how these cells behave. Um, and uh, interestingly, in the skin, for example, the protein that we found that restrained their capacity is also very, very highly expressed in tumours. And so this might, in fact, be one of the, the factors that can control these how these CRM cells are behaving. So it's really, really important to understand how the proteins uh, are affecting the behaviours of various cells. Well, it's fascinating stuff, Susan. Look, thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Go-Go. Good luck with that ongoing work. Keep reminding people of all the other great work that's been done at the Doherty Institute because um, oh, obviously their profile around COVID has been worldwide and spectacular, but there's so many other great areas of research that are done within that institute as well. So thanks for being our guest today on Einstein and Go-Go. Thank you very much, Dr. Shane. Excellent. Now we're going to take a break for some important station announcements, folks, and we'll be back in just a few moments with our uh, second and third guest together um, for Einstein to Go Go today. Triple R. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Megan Ma and Professor Christopher McDevitt from the Doherty Institute. Good morning, morning both of you. Good morning. Good morning. Now it's. It's great that we just we just had another guest from the Doherty Institute. You guys are absolutely overwhelming us today, which is uh, which is all good, um, but very different topics. Now you're working on this Streptococcus pneumoniae bacterium. Did I pronounce that even close to correct, Megan? Spot on, actually. Oh, very there you good. go. <laughs> I think that's just random chance. Um, <laughs> t- tell us a bit about what that um, particular bacterium does to our bodies, and you know what the effects are. Um, maybe Chris can cover this since he's the microbiologist. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, go for it, Chris. Sure, thank you. Um, so Streptococcus pneumoniae, look, it's one of the world's most significant bacterial pathogens. Uh, it primarily causes bacterial pneumonia, so about 50% of bacterial pneumonia is caused by this particular pathogen, but it can also cause meningitis, uh, sepsis, and otitis media. And otitis media is a really major problem in the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations, where it contributes to hearing loss as well as deafness. So globally, Streptococcus pneumoniae still kills about a million people every year, and that's mostly children under five in developing countries, but also the elderly uh, who obviously have uh, less robust immune systems. 
Hmm. And what's the source of it, Chris? I mean, you know, we all often talk about what the sort of reservoir is for various diseases, you know, in our environment. Where, where is this thing coming from? That's a great question. We are the reservoir. This organism oh. appears to only uh, be associated with humans. I mean, there's more than 100 different uh, what they call serotypes of this organism. There's one that can affect horses in a kind of an unusual situation, but all other uh, serotypes are uh, exclusively associated with humans. So it appears to have co-evolved with us and principally sort of resides in our nasopharynx where it sort of is part of our natural microbiome. Uh, But, you know, when we're immunocompromised, it can, you know, uh, go down into our sort of lower respiratory tract and into our lungs where we get infection. Mm. So one of the things I'm always curious about when, when you say something like that it evolved with us, does it do good for us as well in most, in most circumstances? That's, a, that's an also a really great question. So because it's part of our natural sort of microbial flora, it's part of our nasopharynx, it actually keeps other pathogens under control. So there's a lot of bacterial sort of warfare amongst sort of different bacteria that occupy sort of non-sterile sites in our body. And so there's lots of evidence that this organism produces other molecules that kill other bacteria that are sort of trying to sort of invade our bodies and even sort of other organisms that are commonly found with us. It also keeps their population in control. So it does in many cases sort of seem to positively contribute to keeping other more dangerous organisms out. It's just in those sort of few percent of cases where it does uh, sort of descend and cause serious disease. That's the ones where we want to sort of try and keep them under control. And that's part of why vaccine development is sort of a really challenging aspect to sort of balance the you don't want to wipe it out completely. You just want to keep it out of sites where we don't want it to invade into. Yeah. So in terms of, I mean, vaccines are one angle, obviously, but um, I'm assuming at the moment that uh, essentially antibiotics are the, the sort of approach of choice when things start to get out of control. What, what's the scenario there? I know in many cases, you know, some of the illnesses that we're facing, uh, getting to the point where antibiotic resistance is really problematic. How are we going with this particular bacterium? Badly. Um, <laughs> is, yeah, in, right. in a word. Yeah. Um, so penicillin resistance rates can are more than 80% in some geographies, and we're seeing really clinically significant multi-drug resistance um, to more than one type of antibiotic. You know, these rates are around 40% and rising at the moment. So antibiotics still work to some extent against this organism, but they're definitely waning, and that's where we need to be really careful you know, in the pre-antibiotic, pre-vaccination era, you know, pneumococcal pneumonia had a fatality rate of about one in three, and that's where we need to be careful not to go back to. Mm. It, it's interesting to me because I think, um, you know, it's that scenario where you want to treat this as quickly and most rapidly as possible, but if we over-treat and overuse, and we have this problem, and, and that balance is really hard to strike, it would seem like it's not an easy thing for clinicians to work out at what point, you know, we're sort of harming the greater the greater sort of long-term objectives relative to the individual. I mean, there's really no way to tell at this point, is there? I mean, you just do your best, I suppose, on the day. Well, rapid diagnosis is, I guess, one strategy in terms of targeting therapeutic usage, but there's always a lag between identifying the source organism and what resistances it might have. Mm. And there's been some instances where even though an organism might not have a specific resistance to an antibiotic, 
it, uh, it may not actually succumb to treatment because there's still complex lifestyle issues with how these organisms are sort of surviving within our bodies. And if they're producing like complex matrixes of things like biofilm or polysaccharides, it can be really difficult for the antibiotic to even reach them in the first place. And so, mm. uh, as you say, clinicians need to make very quick decisions with limited information. And whilst that's great, it works in most cases, it's where you can end up. There's still be some cases where people will succumb because, uh, you know, the best decision, you know, still, you know, wasn't yep. effective in treating what they have. Yeah. Now, Megan, this is where I think you, you come in and you're, you're looking at a, another um, aspect of a bacterium that I hadn't really thought of before, but um, tell us about the fact that essentially all of these things, like any organism, need um, they need vitamins and minerals to survive. I, don't, I hadn't really thought about bacterium in that way, that you know, if they don't get their good vitamins and minerals, they're done for. I mean, tell us about that. Yes, that's true. So all organisms actually in life need what we call trace elements or trace minerals. And they can be, um, I think, uh, elements that we're probably familiar with, like iron, for example. We all know that, you know, for good human health even, we need iron. But they can even be something more obscure like molybdenum. Um, mm. All organisms actually need molybdenum, uh, those that don't use tungsten. And in this case, um, looking at Streptococcus pneumoniae, uh, it's uh, manganese, which is essential for this bacterium. So if this bacterium can't scavenge enough manganese from its environment, it actually can't initiate an infection or maintain it. Does that mean, is it getting the manganese from, from us, like from parts of our body? That's right. It's um, scavenging the manganese from the environment in which it's um, residing, the, where, where the infection is. Mm. Now, what, what you've been working on is this idea of uh, what structures are involved in, in that process, and there were some surprising outcomes of that, I understand. Tell us about that. That's right. So um, all cells actually have a membrane around them, so that counts for bacteria as well. And in the, the mem what the membrane does basically is holds the inside of the cell inside and stops it leaking out. Mm -hmm. Um, but and it also protects it from the environment. But obviously, cells need nutrients, and they also need to um, get rid of any toxins or toxic byproducts of their metabolism. So, in the membrane sits these proteins called membrane proteins or membrane protein transporters, and their specifically their function is to bring in the nutrients that are required, and then also specifically expel the toxins that are not required. So um, Chris actually approached me a long time ago and said, um, I found a transporter or a membrane protein sitting in the membrane of Streptococcus pneumoniae and it brings in the manganese. Um, can we work out what it looks like? So that was sort of my job. Uh, so um, we, we worked on that for a long time actually and managed to work out the architecture of the membrane protein. And the, I guess the, the idea behind that is if you can work out what it looks like, then you work out how it works. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and, and what, does that, what does that look like in terms of this particular sort of cell type? Um, so the interesting thing about it, all membrane proteins have a, part, a component of their structure that sits in the membrane, and that's the pathway by which the manganese passes through the membrane. Um, but in that pathway sits a little pocket that has um, specific chemical components that interact with the manganese as it passes through. And that was a bit of a surprise, actually, mm. because in, 
for this class of transporter, the overriding sort of philosophy was that they were called Teflon-coated ch channels, that they actually wouldn't interact with the material that was or the substance that was passing through. But we found a little pocket that we think um, specifically interacts with the manganese and, and that's really important to its function. And Chris, through his experiments, showed that if we altered that little pocket, then the manganese transport couldn't occur anymore. So is that, is that a possible therapeutic option then, if you can essentially get this switched off, this little, you know, formerly Teflon nonstick pathway, if you can sort of turn that into a nasty, crappy old fry pan that either just doesn't work well <laughs> anymore, then you can kind of, you know, you can kind of switch that off and es essentially then the cells die, right? I mean, that's it. That's right. So I, I guess we could target that, but because it sits in the membrane, it's a bit uh, tricky to actually get drugs to it. Probably the better idea is to target the surface of the protein that sits at the top of the membrane and then stop it interacting with the, the substance, the manganese that needs to pass through. So that's what we're going to try and do next. And okay. you're right, it will be an antibiotic, hopefully, if, if, we work, if, if it works. Yeah. And how long would it take? Like, would that be a fast acting approach? Like, it's a very different approach to, you know, other, other things that we've been doing. And so first question very quickly is, would, would that be a fast response, like fast enough to, you know, help, help the person? And, and second, is it something that it would form resistance to in the same way that, you know, we see resistance to antibiotics or is this more a structural thing that's harder to resist? Well, I think the first approach we might use is using antibodies. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with antibodies, but they're molecules that specifically bind to proteins. And in yep. that case, that would be quite a fast therapy. Um, after that, we could develop drug-like molecules that also bound there, but we're probably going to look at antibodies first. Uh, in terms of resistance, I might hand over to Chris whether he thinks that might cause resistance. Thanks, Megan. It's unlikely this is the only pathway this organism has for getting manganese into the cell. So we'd expect the likelihood of resistance development to be very low. The other point that Megan's making is we're trying to attack it from the outside. So we don't need to worry about, you know, typical resistance mechanisms, which are right. making sort of ways to pump the drugs out of the cells. Here we want to attack it at the surface. And that's a really unique opportunity with this specific sort of therapeutic approach and targeting this type of organism. Yeah. Oh, look, it's fascinating stuff, guys, and really interesting to hear these new discoveries in terms of the way these particular bacterium cells work and, and what that means for us. Thanks so much, both of you, for being on Einstein and GoGo -Go today. Good luck with the ongoing work, and hopefully we'll get some new treatments for um, these particular conditions, which I know, you know, literally affect millions and millions of people all over the world every year. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Folks, that was Associate Professor Megan Maher and Professor Christopher McDevitt from the Doherty Institute in the University of Melbourne. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back shortly after that with our final guest today. We're going to be talking about uh, some new and very interesting treatments uh, for uh, dealing with abnormal brain waves that um, affect certain patients. So hang in there. Triple R. On the line with us now, though, is Professor Michael Ibbotson. He's the director of the National Vision Research Centre in the Australian College of Optometry, and he's also in the Department of Optometry and Vision Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Michael, welcome to Einstein and GoGo. It's nice to be here. Thank you very much. Now, Michael, you're working on something that is a huge problem, and that is um, essentially what's going on with our brains when people have seizures as a result primarily of epilepsy. Just 
give us a bit of a feel for what what happens there with the human brain you know when when these seizures occur or pre the seizure yeah well so during during seizures uh, as you're probably aware i mean obviously the the, the human brain's got this uh it's got billions of neurons and they're, they're all generating electrical activity all the time and that generates what we call brain waves. Um, epilepsy, um, you get seizures. The seizures um, are when you get abnormal brain activity and basically that, that can, um, it just disrupts uh, the brain for a while and um, obviously that leads to all sorts of uh, unfortunate events for the person um, seizures can have a number of number of different effects, mm. and and just talk us through some of those because I, I'm assuming that involves many of the things that we all take for granted, whether it be you know driving a car or doing certain jobs. I mean, what what is the impact on people when they have the threat of these seizures in their life? Well, it, there's a range of effects, but I mean, it can be that people freeze for a while. Uh, and of course, uh, you know that prevents them from being able to drive. Uh, it also really creates problems in social environments. If, if somebody uh, is worried about uh, having a seizure and, and sort of freezing in a social event, it um, you know it creates real psychological um, problems for that person. They don't want to go out. And obviously, if you can't drive, you're kind of locked down a bit. So it's a little bit like COVID nineteen. It's uh, it's a case of being locked at home. Yeah. And one of the things you described there is interesting to me, this idea of someone just freezing, because I think when many people think of epilepsy, they think of a far more um, physical extreme scenario that um, a person might go through a, a quite physical seizure. But what you're describing is more just essentially like a pause that, that the person's stuck in for a period. Is that right? That's right. Look, it, there's, there's, it's a very complicated uh, condition. And uh, the brain, you know, with its uh, 86 billion neurons, uh, you know, there's, there's many things that can happen. You can have focal events where you actually have a quite localised seizure and then you can have very general events which uh, generalise across the entire brain. Mm. And, you know, different events um, have different impacts. You, the, the, the ones you mentioned, the very extreme cases where people uh, start to show outward uh, very obvious effects, um, actual motor effects where they might um, clench clench up and actually go into that uh, very, very uncomfortable to watch situation where someone's suffering from a, a very uncomfortable seizure event. But most events actually are, are much smaller than that, but they nonetheless cause great problems. I mean, you know, if you freeze for a few seconds, uh, clearly you can't drive a car in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, incre- it's an incredibly impactful event on, on someone's life, I can imagine. Now, before we get on to what you're specifically doing, how do we go about mapping the sort of brain's electrical activity to to determine, you know, what's going on? I mean, what's the sort of the current, you know, before you came along with your work, which you're about to talk to, what was the state of the art in terms of mapping that activity and, and this sort of storm of electrical activity that happens during a seizure? Yeah, so obviously the... the, the- traditional way of doing this is to is to measure brain waves outside outside the skull so you can put electrode caps on where you have many electrodes across the the brain surface and you can pick up the uh the brain wave activity that way that's called an electroencephalograph uh we've been doing those for years and um they're reasonably good but you can understand that the signal that you are picking up you know it's it's a 
combination of 86 billion neurons uh, mm-hmm. and all of their activity. So it's very non-specific, and um, you know it's quite difficult to pick up with really high resolution. So you can pick up the event, but one of the things about epilepsy is, is there are actual electrical indications. So there's, there's actual neural activity, abnormal neural activity that actually occurs long before the actual seizure. And so it's really that that we're interested in, because if we can predict seizures, it's a bit like the weather weather forecasting. Mm. Now, that's effectively what we want to do. We want to be able to say, you know, on Tuesday, um, this is what we expect to happen. Yeah. And if we can map it out in that way, but in order to achieve that, what we need is we need high fidelity. So to, so to use the, um, yeah, it's a nice example, if you're listening to music, um, you know, we all we all want hi-fi. And so what that means is we want high fidelity. And, and that's what we need to achieve. And to get high fidelity with the brain, we need to record not sort of um, external signals that have already been combined and uh, made it through the skull. So they're, mm. they're very attenuated. What we want is is the the information from inside the brain. Yeah. Now that that's sort of what you've been working on. How do you go about doing that, but in a fairly you know non invasive way? Because I think as soon as people start thinking about the idea of electrodes or even even implants under the skull to do this sort of work, it sounds pretty invasive. So what, what's your alternative? Uh, well, that's exactly what we are doing. We're, we're going. We're going inside the brain, but um, what we're trying to do is absolutely minimise that. Mm. So um, there are, you can do brain surgery these days, like like all forms of surgery and all all forms of science, things have improved dramatically, beyond belief, really. So um, I guess the state of the art at the moment is to to, um, do a craniotomy, which is to open a hole in the skull, and you can actually mount surface electrodes, actually on the brain surface uh, through that hole and then you, you let that grow back over. So that, that's currently sort of high-tech version that's at the moment. What we really wanted to do was to try and even minimise that. So we'd like to get to the point where we can drill, you know, a microscopic hole into the skull and through that microscopic hole then effectively inject an electrode uh, and that minimises the surgery. And in effect, um, you know, that, that small hole through the skull actually will, will heal over extremely quickly. Mm. So, I mean, basically, I guess the first step was to try and minimise surgery, and that's why we've got a surgical team involved in the, yep. in the program, of course. Um, and the other thing is um, the problem is as soon as you start putting any kind of electrode into the brain, the brain doesn't particularly like um, foreign objects, not surprisingly, so um, most electrodes are made of metal, and so you can imagine putting something metal into the brain. Metal tends to be quite sharp, uh, and it's it's a it's obviously a foreign object. The brain doesn't like it; it tries to reject it. So the the main focus of our work is is really to use carbon based materials. So the idea is to use carbon fibers, rather specialized carbon fibers, which are incredibly tiny. We're talking eight microns. That's eight thousandths of a millimeter in diameter. And the idea is to um, drill an extremely small hole, uh, probably at several sites in the brain, and to literally just inject these these tiny um, carbon fibers into the brain. 
and basically do minimal damage. And the beauty of it is that they're made of carbon and uh, mm-hmm. our brains are basically made of carbon. Um, and, uh, and so the idea is that these carbon fibres are very flexible and that we are hoping that they're going to live inside the brain, hopefully for a lifetime. Michael, it's fascinating stuff. And look, we're going to go in a few seconds, but um, have, have you started trials as yet on individuals or is it still coming up? Yeah, so we're, we're preclinical trials at the moment, so everything has to be tested out extremely carefully before we go to human. The plan is about three to four years uh, to go to the, the human trials. And, um, you know, we're, we are currently sorting out all the surgical issues and all of the, uh, all of the injection issues. Michael, it's fascinating stuff. And I think for, for so many people out there who, as you say, have been in a sense of lockdown that we all now appreciate a lot better for the majority, in some cases for the majority of their lives, hopefully this will give them that early warning system that um, yeah, they would yeah. so desire. So that's right. Thank, thanks so much for being our guest on I'm the Go-Go today. Good luck with the ongoing work. And we hope to, we'll, we'll get you on the few years time when that's when you're starting to see those trials play out. That would be fantastic. We look forward to that. Thanks so much, folks. That was Professor Michael Ibbotson, who is the director of the National Vision Research Institute and also from the Department of Optometry and Vision Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Well, we are almost out of time. We are uh, at that point where we're going to have to hand over to the amazing team from Eat It shortly. Uh, I think um, for those of you out there who are, you know, hanging in there in the lockdown, um, do your best. It is a very tough and uh, arduous period that we're in that hopefully will end soon. But I think we've got a few, uh, few weeks at least to go. So Hopefully, we've uh, given you a small respite this morning on Einstein and Gogo, and we hope that you'll also enjoy Eat It, which is coming up in just a moment. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.